0: Our scripture passage for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them.
1: If you're new or or visiting Metro Presbyterian Church today, for the past several months, we've been looking at Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' famous teachings about the character of the kingdom. He gathers this large crowd by the mountainside, and there he starts to teach them. He teaches them about what? About the values, the policies, the character of the kingdom. What would it look like if he actually took the gospel and actually lived it out? this is what it would look like. And uh, he starts out in this section of, of the text, he begins by teaching his disciples how to pray, and in the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, and then he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, so he starts out by saying, he, he, we're praying about provision, God's provision in our lives, and then he says, don't try to like go out of your way to hoard and to, and to store up things because that is a sure sign of your lack of trust. And then he goes into anxiety. He says, do not worry. Three times he says that, do not worry. He's saying anxiety is wrong, it's painful. It's actually corrosive and destructive to your heart and soul. It's like this tumor that starts to grow and unless you address it, unless you have it removed, it's gonna eat up your life, it's gonna be, corrode your life. How are we gonna do that? How are we going to do that? Jesus says, if you listen to me, I will show you the key to removing this tumor of anxiety. So, walk with me together today. Uh, We're going to look at three points what it is, what is anxiety, what's the source of anxiety, how can you be healed of anxiety in your life, what is it, where does it come from, how do you get rid of the tumor? Three points. First, what is it? What is anxiety? And you can look at it from several vantage points because anxiety has got many properties, many, many layers. Um, from a psychological perspective, you can say it's acute. You know, it can be focused or it can be very chronic, debilitating to your soul. Um, there's this undercurrent of suspense in your life, paranoia, fear in your life. It's, and it's, it's this underlying current uh, fear that exists or it could have this um, uh, physiological side to it you know the, your, your autonomic n- nervous system it, it puts you on edge it's designed to put you on edge whenever you sense some sort of danger in your life and, and as a result adrenaline is pumping in your life and it makes you always ready and if you stay in the course of um, this readiness for a long period of time because of something that's not impending danger immediately such as like uh, financial stress or or you're, you're growing older and you're no longer youthful in your life and you're not addressing that, and your body is constantly in the state of readiness, then you're going to burn out. Your heart is just going to burn up. And you're going to burn out. And it's going to result in things like you know, your fluctuations in weight or high blood pressure, gastritis, ulcers, uh, hypertension. But it's also got this philosophical layer. You know, Maria Rainier Rilke, who's one of my favorite existential authors, he writes a short story, wrote a lot of short stories. He wrote a short story called The Gym Class. And in the gym class, you have these children who are in just the brutality of military education in those days. This is like the 1930s, 1940s. And you have these oppressive people who are just lording over these children small children and they're trying to cope with the brutality of this military education and as one child in fear starts in gym class starts to climb up this rope and he knows that if he lets go and goes down he sees all the brutality underneath him all the children exposed to fear at this very young age and they're Fearing down low, and he looks ahead and he's afraid where he is. So he does the one thing he can do he continues to climb. And he's climbing. And he's climbing. Now, an existential author doesn't believe that God exists because God has died. He has left us. And as a result, he's climbing. But where is he climbing? So inadvertently, he lets go. And he hurtles to the ground and he dies. And all the children now are left to cope with the concept of death. These are young kids. And the oppressors, these, these teachers, they basically get the kids to stand up, to buck up, and they say, march out. This child has died. Move on. And now it's recess. And the children are coping with the stress of death. And they don't know how to make sense of it. And so one kid at the end of this line of friends that are walking along back to their quarters starts to jump around hysterically and jumps on the back of one of his friends and starts to laugh hysterically. And that's how the story ends. Very sad. not not what you normally would expect from a children's story. But what is he saying? What he's saying is this. There's no rhyme or reason to life. Life is uncontrollable. There's no rhyme or reason to life. Things just happen. Heart attacks, anxiety, anything that's going to make you anxious. Life is senseless brutality. We're just thrown around. We're all children. We're all children that are just being thrown around and pushed from here or there, and we're just trying to cope with the senselessness of life. And this boy, he's laughing, and he can't stop. You know, he's, he's, he's disturbed by this picture of life that he sees, and Rilke's point is this. Anxiety infects every single one of us, every part of life, socially, physiologically, psychologically, Philosophically, your body, you have heart attacks. Your mind, it's senseless. You can't make sense out of it. Your soul, and as a result, you're laughing. You don't even know why you're laughing. It's the only way you can, you're just coping with, with life because life is uncontrollable. Jesus knows. Jesus knows this. Verse 25, he says, Do not worry about life. Verse 34, he says, Do not worry about tomorrow. The beginning and the end of the passage, he starts with do not worry. He ends with do not worry. The whole passage is his way of convincing and assuring his people to not worry about life, about tomorrow. What is it? What is anxiety that grips us? It's a concern about what could happen because of what hasn't happened in our lives. In other words, life is unpredictable, uncontrollable, We're just trying to make sense of it. We're all children living out of the horror of a military academy, the brutality of life, and we're just being thrown about. Forces around us that are uncontrollable, that we cannot control, that are just brutally, brutally just acting on us. The essence of anxiety is this. We're trying to control the things that we can't control in life. We can't. That's why we're being anxious. That's why we're anxious. When you realize that control is lost in life, you get anxious. That's what it is. That's the first point. Very simple, very quick. Here's the second point. Where does it come from? What's the source? The Bible probably gives us the most coherent answer. You know what? That didn't sound very confident. The Bible does give us the most coherent answer about where it comes from. If you look carefully at the text, Jesus is saying in a very general way that the source of our anxiety is our desire to control life. In other words, we want what God has control, power. That's what we want. And that's exactly the point. You know, Jesus asks in verse 27, who of you by worrying adds a single hour to life? The point is we worry. We do worry. Whether he tells us to worry, whether he tells us not to worry, we're going to worry. Because if we could add a single hour to our lives on our own power, on our own strength, we would We would do that. We want the power that God has. Jesus is saying, verses 25 to 27, isn't life more important than food and drink? Look at the birds in the air. The Father just feeds them. In other words, they don't worry. They're not as valuable as you. They don't think the way you think. They're just in the air, and the Father yet feeds them. They've done nothing to earn it. The Father just feeds them. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? He's saying, listen, who's been keeping your life going anyway? You say, I I got a job. I got to work at my job. I just got to work, and the thing is my job just makes me work harder and harder. I can't help that. Life is uncontrollable. You're right. That's why I just got to keep at it. I got to keep going. Who gave you your job? That's what he's asking, really. You think you earned that job on your own? You think you earned that success on your own? You think the title and the power and the status that you've earned through your job, you got that on your own because your life is here today, gone tomorrow. Who can add, who knows the hours of life that you will live? Who has been keeping your life going? Why worry about it now? That's what he's asking. When the doctor comes and he gives you bad news... When your boss comes and he gives you bad news, you get anxious. Why? Because suddenly, all of a sudden, beyond your expectation, life has all of a sudden gone out of control. But it's those threats that reveal the illusion we've been living all these years anyways. And what's the illusion? The illusion is this. Up until this point, we never were in control in the first place. We never were in control. We get anxious because we feel like life is getting out of control, but that's actually not true. The reality is these threats, suffering in our lives, it reveals the true nature, the true condition of our lives. We were never in control in the first place. Life was always out of control. Danger, which triggers anxiety, doesn't show us a new condition. It's not a new thing. It doesn't show us, why didn't I think of this? You never would have thought of it. At the deepest level, It's showing us what we knew all along. In the deep recesses of our hearts, we knew this all along. We just didn't want to believe it. We knew it all along. We were never in charge in the first place. Jesus says we are anxious because we disbelieve. We are anxious because we dislike the fact that we are totally dependent, wholly dependent on the supporting, sustaining, governing God in our lives. We don't like it, We're afraid of it, and it makes us anxious. Where did it come from? This desire for control, where did it come from? In the Garden of Eden, Adam was given complete control. He was established as a vice king under God, under his master. He was called as a steward over the earth. And so he never worried. At that time, he never worried. But the reason that we want to be in control of our lives is the result of that. Like Adam, we were built to be in control. We were built to be that way. And God says to Adam, I want you to subdue the earth. It was one of his first ordinances. I want you to control the earth. Take the earth and put it under you. He starts by naming the animals. As he names the animals, what is he doing? He's basically acting as steward over the earth. We were built to be stewards, vice rulers in the garden, vice rulers in the kingdom. Vice rulers, then, over the earth. We are servants with the authoritative power that God has given us. And on one hand, then, you respect the master, but to everything else, you are actually the ruler. You are under the ultimate ruler, but you are the ruler. And you grow in the master's authority, and as a result, you're dependent, you're loving, you're obedient to the king. You were built that way, but at the same time, you were called to subdue the earth. But the Bible tells us we didn't want to just be vice kings. If you think about how you run your household, if you think about how you run your job, we didn't just want to be vice kings. You know, we want to rule everything. We didn't. We weren't just called to subdue. We were called to subdue the earth, but we didn't want to just subdue the earth. You know, um, we wanted to be King Himself. We want to be in charge of God. We want to be God. We thought that by taking charge, making our own decisions about what is good for us, that we would increase our potential, increase our freedom, increase our options in life, increase our joy. All of a sudden, we realized that sin entered into our lives. The thing that we thought would make us more human is actually making us less human. We thought that by taking charge of our lives on our own, without God, we would have more options. We have less options. We thought it would increase our potential. It actually decreases our potential. We thought by being apart from God, we would be more free. Instead, we become less free. We thought we would have more joy by being alone. We realize we're alone. In an uncontrollable world, it gave us less joy. It gives us less joy. We tried to be more of ourselves, we thought. We realize we're less of ourselves. Today, How do we respond to the need for control? We're built to be kings. We're built to be rulers. How do we respond to our need for control today in this brokenness now? We're no different than Adam. We're no different than Adam. We hunger for power. We think by having more power over things, more control over things, we could be our own master. We're still living that out. The brokenness of that Adam thought, we still have it. And as a result, there's this God sized hole in our hearts. And we're just trying to fill it with power, fill it with more control, control over our kids, control over our house, control over our possessions. That's why we accrue things. That's why we do that. Control over our relationships, every detail of our relationships. Control over our finances because that is so easy to do. You just get online these days, look at the bank account, and we know just this is what we got to do. We got to just micromanage everything. Then I know that life is going to be okay. Okay. There's this God-sized hole. You know why we say it's a God-sized hole? Only God can fill it. Sin has created this God-sized hole in our hearts. And we're just trying to fill it with all these other things. And the hole doesn't get smaller. It only gets bigger. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, because the reason why is because only ultimate power can fill it. But you don't have it. So what are you left with? That gap creates what? Anxiety. You know why you're anxious? It's because you want to be in charge. You're trying to be in charge. What's anxiety? It's the need for control. Where does it come from? It starts with the way we were built. The design was for us to be rulers. But because of the brokenness of sin in our lives, we try to be our own master and even try to take over God himself. We have usurped him as king. And in our smaller kingliness, we try to be the ultimate king And we've lost the king. And by losing the king, we've lost ourselves. And by losing ourselves, this God-sized hole has been created that we're trying to fill in our lives with power, with all the things that make us anxious to relieve that anxiety, and it only grows. We can't. We can't. We think we know what it's going to take. Right now we're saying, if only, if I only have this, then I know life is going to be okay. And you can't. Because you can't predict tomorrow. You don't know. It's an uncontrollable world. We just don't know. What do we do? What do we do? Essentially in this passage, the text is really saying that if you're full of anxiety, Jesus prescribes a few things. Well, first he says, just stop it. (laughs) He says, just stop it. How do you stop it? Because even if he tells you, even if God is telling you to stop, you can't just stop. Jesus says, You need to put off certain things. You need to put on certain things. And so I'm going to walk through what these things are. First, he says, I want you to think. I want you to trust that God is in control. I want you to think. I want you to reason. And I want you to trust that God is in control. Verses verses 26 and 28. Jesus says, Look at the birds. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. See the flowers? Modern translations say, look, see. But think about it, what you're doing when you're looking at something and when you're seeing something because that's the word that Jesus is actually using here. The word that Jesus uses is, I want you to reflect on the birds. I want you to ponder and reflect on the lilies, the flowers, the grass. I want you to reflect on these things. I want you to think about these things. He's saying, if you're anxious, if you're living in anxiety, you aren't thinking. You know, you're thinking about a lot of things, but you're not really thinking. You're not really reasoning. He says, do not be anxious, but look, see, think. What is faith? Is faith the absence of thinking? It's the exact opposite of that. Does Jesus ever call us to just close your eyes and just jump? To close your eyes and just leap? If that's, your tradi- if that's your understanding of what faith is, faith is the absence of thinking. Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus ever tell you to leave your mind at the door, to leave it behind. He never tells you to do that. In fact, he actually says, no, actually, I want you to think. I want you to think about, I, w- I want you to think. You're not thinking enough. I want you to think with more richness, with more fullness. According to this text, Jesus is saying that faith is, Is thinking. Anxiety is is what's the absence of thinking. You're just reacting to things. It's like when we speak before we think, you say, I shouldn't have said that. I take that back. Because later on, you thought about what you said, and you realize, why did I say it like that? Why did I even say that? What is faith? Faith is not living in line with what you don't know. Because if you live in line with what you don't know, that's going to create anxiety. You're just a part, You're just being tossed around in an uncontrollable world. Faith, rather, is living in line with what you do know. To know what you know, you have to think. You have to reflect. When your heart's starting to run off course, you are starting to react to situations and circumstances in your life, the way that you or, or I speak before we actually think, you know, we start to say things like, this is really bad. I need to do something right now. This is going to be awful. I need to do something right now. Sometimes it's just impulsive. Something happens, boom, you react. When you react, what are you doing? You're responding to your heart, which is speaking out to you and saying, you better do something right now. This is urgent. You better put everything, you better react right now. You better respond right now to this thing. It takes over you. It coerces you. It urges you. It captivates you. I'm trying to think of other words I could use to, to, to get us. You know, it captivates you. It coerces you. It motivates you. That's what it's doing. It controls you. It owns you. Listening to your heart is going to bring anxiety. But instead, what Jesus is asking you to do is this. He's saying, when that happens, I want you to consider the birds in the air. I want you to consider. I want you to stop and think. I want you to stop and reflect. Think about the facts. Let that counteract with your heart. I want you to live in line with what you do know. I want you to live in line with the facts that you know. I want you to live in line with truth. I want you to read the truth. Trust the truth. That's what I want you to do. Faith is living in line with what you know. It's this position of assurance, a position of confidence based on what God is saying in his word. When God is saying something in his word, what he's saying is, this is me. I am putting my reputation, I'm putting, I want you to trust me because I'm staking my reputation. It's one thing to say something to you and have that being passed down over generations. It's another thing to have it written down because then you're having it open to critique. He's saying, I am good for it. I want you to trust me. Don't just trust in me. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me and my word. Go ahead. Try to find another way. See how it works for you. I'm telling you there's no other way that you can wrap, wrap your arms around the uncontrollable factor uh, of life, facts of life, that we have no control over life save for what is written here. Now, if you do believe, circumstances are going to arise, but you're going to consider. You're going to, faith is going to make you consider. It's going to work and counteract what your heart's desiring, what your heart's impulses are getting you to do. Trust God's word. First you think, then you trust in God's word. God is in control. God is in charge. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the grass of the field. In other words, consider the birds. God is in charge. God is in control. God is in charge. God has given us all that we need. You don't have the power to even add a single hour or a single minute to your life, but God does. God has all the power. God has all the authority. We call that the providence of God. The root word of providence is what? Providence. Providence. Sustenance. Sustain, right? The, wor- the work of God to constantly provide, the act of God to constantly provide in our lives. That is who He is. Everything happens. It's part of His provision, it's part of His plan. That's what He's saying. Romans chapter 8, it's printed in your bulletin as part of the word of encouragement. All things work together for the good of those whom God loves. Jesus is saying, Look at the birds, they're beautiful they're graceful. They don't have a worry in the world. That's God's sustenance. That's God's providence. That's his providence. He's in control. He's in charge. On one hand, it means you are responsible for your anxiety. You are responsible for, for your reactions you are responsible as your heart wells up in desire to control. If you give in to that, you are absolutely responsible for that. And yet, God is going to even use that to work out his perfect plan, to work out his ultimate provision for you. So just trust him. Don't just react. Just trust him. Now, I wish I could go into that. I w- you know, the concept of pr- providence is such a deep, big thing. I wish I could go into that. Um, and unpack that a little bit more. But the point here, really, to keep us focused is to trust that there is provision, that there is a plan. Believe that God has control. If you don't believe it, it is impossible. If you don't start there, it is impossible to deal with your anxiety. Now, there are some great written texts that I've read over the course of the last several weeks on this. And one of the things that these texts says is that you have to take yourself out. You know, we live such self-absorbed lives because our world shrinks to the size of our troubles and our problems and all of a sudden we place ourselves in the center of the universe. That's what we do. And the prescription here is to take yourself out of that. You got to take yourself out of the center because when you do that, you're able to see that God's plan, his holistic plan and purpose in life actually includes you so by taking yourself out of the center of your own life you actually become at the center of god's plan so you have this world that is yours this universe that is yours when you take yourself out of that you actually become part you actually realize the grander plan of god and you're actually at the center you're actually included in that it's an amazing thing you're right there in there and I was debating whether or not I want to share this, but I'll give you an example. I'm just going to do this. Um, I, you know, one of my favorite preachers had done that for the history of his own church, and I'm going to do that for ours, okay? It starts with this. A lot of us here have been helped by this church. A lot of us here have been healed and helped and have been growing in this community. We've just been a year and a half old, and we've been growing in this community. We've experienced the gospel. And by experiencing the gospel, we know that God's presence is active in our lives, This church has only been around for about 18 months. But do you know why it's here? It's because I'm a part of a denomination that happens to really be committed and devoted to church planning. So because it was devoted to church planning, I was planted here in East Falls. Now, why am I a part of that denomination? Well, it's because I went to a very Philly-focused, a Philadelphia-focused seminary program, one that our denomination... Endorses, and actually, our our entire denomination endorses this. And um, but it's very urban focused; it's very very city focused. Now, why did I join that program? Um, because I had two mentors. One mentor was is a very very prominent church planner, and uh, he had he was the first one to introduce me to the program. He's the one that encouraged me to go. The other one was when I was a layman, not even thinking about ministry, he said, you know what? I would like for you to preach to our congregation at our church. And I want, to, I, want to just, I want you to just try out your calling. See if maybe the Lord has called you. And so these two mentors have been working in my heart, working in my life. They convinced me to go to this program. They're theologically sound. They're very ministry-focused, very gospel-focused people. Um, but why did I do that? Well, why did I come and even encounter these ministers? Uh, well, I was new to Philadelphia I followed a friend to this one church um, and uh, this is now probably over a decade ago and that's where I met my wife for that matter and uh, I went to this church and that's, that's how I came to this vision. Now, why w- did I come to Philadelphia? Well, because I lived in Philadelphia. My dad actually was murdered in the city in Philadelphia years ago, decades ago. And um, so I've always had this kind of heart for Philadelphia but the city at the time when I was in high school was a dump. Center City is nothing like it is today. And so I left the city, and I went to Boston, and I went to Brandeis University. Now, why did I do that? Well, because in 1948, a group of people got together and founded Brandeis University, one of which was Albert Einstein, because they wanted, at the time when anti-Semitism was very, very high, they wanted to establish an institution that was going to be equal in its opportunities for the Jewish community people who are young and and Jewish community in the United States. Why did that happen? Well, because Albert Einstein actually defected over to the United States during the course of that whole period of World War II. So if you really think about it, Albert Einstein defected over to the United States so that Metro Presbyterian Church could be planted. If you take yourself out of the center of your own small universe, all of a sudden you see the grand scheme of God's plan and provision for us. That's what you got to do. That's what you do. We could sit here together. We can thank Albert Einstein <laughs> for, for us being here together and worshiping today. When you take yourself out of the center of your world, you, the world shrinks to the size of your problems. You actually become a part of a grander plan, a grander center. All this becomes for you. You guys ever watched the movie? I loved, It's my favorite book. But did you watch the movie, Pride and Prejudice, it's not that good. It's like two hours long. You can't do that movie. You can't do that book in two hours. But you know, for for, what it's in, for all intents and purposes, it's a decent movie. And at the end of the movie, it's not in the book, but at the end of the movie, Lizzie Bennet, the main character, people say one of the most complex characters in all of literature, she stops focusing on her anger towards this person her pride and her prejudice against this person. And she t- because her attention turns to her family and the urgency of what's going on in her family, potential shame and disgrace. And she gives up any chance because as her heart is now starting to change towards this person, she gives up any opportunity to react and respond actively to reconcile with the person because of this urgency and this, the important thing that has happened in her life. And so she knows that she needs to focus. And she... Her heart's changing, but she says, I'm going to abandon that. I have to focus on my family. And what does she do? Um, she acts in line with what she believed about the true protagonist or one of the true protagonists in the story, Mr. Darcy. He is the, he is the redeeming figure in this, in this story. And w- why do I say she acts in line with what she knows? Because late at night, after her problem, this intense thing that was about to cause shame and disgrace in her life, um, is resolved. She has no idea how, but it gets resolved. And as she's uh, at home resting, Lady Catherine de Bourgh, this very, very high-class woman with tremendous amount of pride, comes before her house. Shame uh, dis- uh, dishonors her family verbally. You know, cuts her down. And tells her, I hear a rumor, you were betrothed, you were, you were engaged, or you were about to marry this Mr. Darcy, and I will not allow that because he is actually betrothed to my daughter, to my daughter. And so um, she says, tell me right now that you won't do that. And she says, I will not tell you. She says, number one, he has never approached me. Well, she had rejected him the first time and realizes there's no opportunity of rec- reconciliation. And she says, he has not approached me since. Then, she, then Catherine de Bourgh says, then I want you to tell me that you will not if he ever does. She says, I will not do that. Why? Because she's now starting to act in line with what she knows. Nothing has happened, but she knows. She's starting to act in line with the character of Darcy. And she takes, she's got this new impre, new, newfound impression of Darcy. And with all the potential shame and disgrace that she, and suffering that she's experienced, she takes herself out of, her, out of that picture. And she figures Lady Catherine's probably going to go back and now convince Darcy to go marry someone else. So she could have just said, you know what, I will do that, because you're going you're to act on him anyways. But she says, I will not do that. I'm going to trust that he loves me, and I'm going to wait. She doesn't start reacting and responding. Well, as soon as Catherine de Bourgh leaves, runs over and, and talks, to, he, she doesn't do anything, she says, I'm going to wait. And what happens? She finds out that her situation was completely resolved in the background by this gentleman. He had helped to do everything. And as he approaches her again and propositions her again, he says in the movie, surely you must know it was all for you. She took herself out of the picture, out from reacting, out from acting on her anxieties, only to realize that she was actually in the center of it all along. Surely you must know, it was all for you. It was all for you. Her mother, always reacting, always complaining. If you know anything, if you've ever read the book, always just manipulating and reacting, complaining, regretting, self-pitying, poor judgments, ill-tempered, hasty thinking. She's constantly talking. You know, you see, every single time she's doing that, the husband kind of retreats on his own. He wants to be away from his wife because she's so talkative. But Lizzie Bennet is resilient. Lizzie Bennett trusts. When Jesus says, or when we say, sorry, rather, when we say, Lord, I trust you. You've walked with me. You will continue to walk with me. Then you start to realize it's all for you. His whole plan of redemption, all for you. The minute you say, Lord, you know what's best. I've, all these years I've come to realize, you know what's best. I'm taking myself out of the center of my life. I'm going to stop trying to control everything in my life. There's two parts. I'm not going to only try to not take control. I will also actively give you control. It's two parts. It's not just taking yourself out of the center. It's putting the Lord and responding to the fact that he is in the center. Then there's prayer. Then there's gratitude. All those things happen. How do you do that? How can you do that? Your thinking is really like this. God has never led me to a bad place. A morally transformed heart, a morally restrained heart cannot admit that, that God has never led me to a bad place so I can trust him. Though, I, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. That was a prayer of someone in the Old Testament. A morally restrained heart will never react that way, will never respond that way, but a gospel transformed heart will say, I have suffered the ultimate sufferings in my life, and yet I know that God has never led me in a bad place, a wrong place. Look at your children. Parents, look at your children. Babies, I'm telling you right now, they don't know how to talk, or a lot of them didn't know, but I'll tell you what they were thinking when they weren't able to express themselves. They were thinking you are ruining their lives. That's what they were thinking. My mom and dad ruined my life every moment. I'm crawling. They won't let me crawl anywhere I want to crawl. I see a pebble. Looks good. I want to put it in my mouth. They won't let me put it in my mouth. I see marbles. I see dust particles. I see insects and bugs. Everything I mean I'm crawling, that's all I see. You know, I'm gonna crawl around. And that I pick these things up, the moment I try to put it in my mouth, my mom sweeps in there and says, No, you can't. And they should say it, no, no, I wanna climb upstairs. I don't know how to get down the stairs, but I want to climb up the stairs. They say, no, stop. My mom and dad are ruining my life. They're just ruining my life. And, and, and the thing is, parents are always ruining the children's lives. Don't swallow that. Don't go there. Don't eat this. Eat. It's time to go to sleep. I don't want to sleep. They pout. And yet they realize that they would not have made it to the age of two unless their parents were in their lives doing that. That's what they would realize later on. Unless their parents are saving them every day, every moment. Some people say if I give myself to Him like that, well, then God's going to tell me to start doing things that I don't want to do. He's going to give me things I don't want to have. He's going to tell me to go places I don't want to go. He's going to command things that I don't want to obey. Three things. Number one, of course. What are you, crazy? Of course. Of course that's going to happen. What does it mean to have a father, a parent? You just, he's going to command things that you don't want to obey. Second thing, what does it mean to have a king if you're wiser than him, if you're stronger than him, if you're more competent than him? Third thing, you're still putting yourself at the center if you're thinking that. Your world has shrunk to the size of your desires. And you forget That there's a grand universe a grand story that if you plug in it's going to nourish you and give you life you're saying no i don't trust that you are the all-powerful king you are i get it you created the world you you're all powerful all knowing all present but i'd rather do this because i know better for my life are you crazy (laughs) are you insane that's what we're thinking that's what we think the birds of the air shows us that god's in control Think, trust in the providence of God, that God is in control, God is in charge. You know, um, there's no one else you can trust but him. I can't even trust myself. But how? And here's the key. You say, I'm weak and I have the propensity to be self-absorbed. Verses 28 to 32. I'm just going to read this because this really nourishes nourishes my soul. I hope it will nourish you. Why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day has its own own trouble of its own. Think and trust in the power of God that God is in charge. Think and trust in the love of God. God knows what you need. When you're compelled by his love, that love will counteract with your heart. You can say, listen, no one knows me like the Father. No one loves me like the Father. You got no one to take care of you? God knows even how many hairs you have right now in your head. No one sees you crying because of your anxieties? God is counting your tears. He knows. He knows. Down to that level of detail, He knows. You know that God was not willing, if he wasn't willing to even spare his own son, you don't think he's going to give you what you need? And when you say that, and when, you say you, you know, when you say that you know that, but you actually act apart from that, you don't really believe that. You don't really believe that. You're saying, I really don't think that God has my best interests interest in mind. You know what's going on. You're putting yourself back into the center of your own world again, and anxiety is going to set in. Anxiety. The Father has emptied heaven of its greatest treasure by giving up his own son. But you're not sure if God's going to make your work week good. You know? That's what we're saying. So we're going to just abandon everything that we know about God and basically just live on our own, take matters into our own hands. That's what we're going to do. That is an offense to God. But it's also insane. It is insane. You're putting yourself back at the center. If this were you, and this is you with your children. There's no way you would put up with your children like this. There's no way you would put up with a friend who thinks that way of you. There's no way you would put up with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or your spouse who continually trample on your love the way we do to God's love. So you got to argue with your heart. You got to trust in the love of God. You got to think, reflect on the on the power of God that He's in control, the providence of God, and then you got to think and reflect on the love of God and let that counteract with your heart. He is my Father. What does it mean to have a father? He knows what I need. Verse 33, seek first then his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What does that mean? Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha. Mary is sitting at his feet. At one point she was working. She's sitting at his feet. And Martha's just working. Martha's working. It says at one point Martha is is upset. And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't rebuke Martha. So this is not a rebuke to us. Because all of us here are marthas right jesus looks at martha and says martha martha emotional content and every time you see a word duplicated like that in scripture there's emotional content there so jesus is actually pleading with him emotional you know tremendous compassion towards martha you know martha's type a is martha martha you are worried you are troubled you are anxious many things that word anxious troubled worried is the same word that Jesus uses here he says you are worried about many many things mary has chosen what is better the one thing that you need mary found it mary found it i want you to sit here think here focus here reflect here that's what i want you to do mary has chosen what is better what is better what jesus is saying is if i am at the center That's the end of your anxiety. That's the end of your frustration. But if there's anything else there your profession, your relationships, comfort, money, anything else you're going to be torn up with anxiety in life over time. Torn up with anxiety. Those trails all end up in one place. You think it's making you cozy. You think you're, you're enjoying yourself, you're eating well, you're living well all along. Your soul is getting fat. And the insecurities are leading you right into the oven. You know that fairy tale? The breadcrumbs right into the oven until you're cooked. That's what's going to happen. That's what's happening. Jesus says, put me first. Seek first my kingdom, my righteousness. That's, an, that's a question of priority. Not, it's, a question, not, it's not an issue of order. Put me first, then everything else. It's a question of priority. Put me at the center. That's what he's saying. There are two types of people here today. Some who definitely believe in Jesus. It's one thing to put your faith in him. It's another thing to trust him. To walk in him. That's what I want you to do. Um, Lots of people believe in God, but do you really believe God? Jesus is saying, trust me. Don't just believe in me. I want you to trust me. I want you to obey me. Seek first my kingdom, my righteousness. Either you are more competent, competent to run your life or I am more competent to run your life. Trust the one who is more competent. That's what he's saying. Some people are saying, I can't believe. You know what you're really saying? You're refusing to doubt that you are more competent to run your life than God. That's what you're saying. I can't trust him. What you're saying is, I trust myself more. I am more competent. I just can't get over that. I still think I'm more competent. I'm afraid to give my life to the one person who's actually able to run my life because it's not like you look around in your life. The reason why you have anxiety is things are a mess. They're falling apart. (sighs) Seek Jesus first. Seek him as priority. Come to him. We're coming down to a close here. Who is Jesus? Come to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus knew what it was like to trust God. In the wilderness, The devil comes, it says, to tempt him. Turn these stones to bread because he's hungry. That's the urgent thing. Jesus was hungry. He doesn't do it. What does he do? He quotes the word. He says, I trust the Lord. He doesn't disobey God. He obeys God. The devil comes and says, you can have everything here. Just bow to me. Just worship me. In other words, I can give you all these things without suffering. Will you take it? Jesus says, here's the word. I trust what God says. Jesus obeys God. The third thing, the devil actually even uses the word. He says, I want you to jump from here. It says, the angels will not even let your heels strike the ground. Jesus uses the word. He says, I trust the word. He obeys God instead. And it goes all the way into Gethsemane. And at the Garden of Gethsemane, just moments before he's arrested, tortured, and killed, what do you see? Jesus says, My soul is troubled to the point of death. I am troubled. It's the one time that he actually expresses that I am suffering. He's looking at all that's going to happen to him. The cross, the journey to the cross, the beating, everything, but particularly what happens on the cross. He says, my soul is troubled to the point of death. He's saying, I'm struggling psychologically because I see the danger. I'm struggling physiologically. It says that his sweat dropped like blood. I'm struggling spiritually spiritually you know, that's why I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm anguishing at the coming wrath of God that's going to come on me. And yet, what does Jesus say? He does, he's tempted, but he says, not my will, yours be done. That's what he says. Yours be done. He obeys. To the full, he obeys. He seeks God's kingdom. He seeks God's righteousness to the end, all the way, all the way to the cross, all the way to the cross. On the cross, Jesus has no food, No drink, no clothes. He's stripped completely. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he's naked. And when he cries, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he's saying? I've sought the kingdom and it's gone. You know what he's saying? I'm hungering after you. I'm thirsting for you. It's a deep thirst, the ultimate thirst. And it's gone. It's been taken away from me. I can endure the beating. I can endure the whips. I can endure the thorns. I can endure the journey. I can endure the cross. I can endure the nails. I can endure the nakedness and the mocking, the spitting. I can take these things, but I am suffering the ultimate hunger, the ultimate thirst? The ultimate nakedness, I have become sin before God, and his wrath has come on me and has forsaken me. And yet, do you know, he is quoting Scripture? Down to the end, he is quoting Scripture. He' trusting God's word. For you, for you. Isaiah chapter 53, it says that he remains silent. He could have spoken, he could have acted, but he remained silent, even in death. And do you know that even in death, he's comforting people, the thief. He says, today, you will be with me in paradise because he trusted, he trusted to the end in his suffering for you. And if you think that by worrying, by taking matters into your own hands, you're gonna add a single hour to your life, no. If God is willing to sacrifice his own son then any suffering that you endure is not to punish you. It's not because he's forsaken you. He's forsaken Jesus so that he remembers you and he's using those things to redeem you and complete you. And that's why Christians, even to the point of death, they said, you know what? You're going to martyr me. You're going to persecute me. You will only complete me. Will you think? Will you reflect? Will you trust in the providence of God, in the love of God for you And let that speak into your heart and counteract all the doubts. Let that look at truth. Let that counteract all the doubts. All the doubts, all the self-pitying, all the complaining. Will you do that this week? Let's pray.